Welcome to episode 82 of the Historic Performance Podcast, featuring Reese Carr, Head of Fitness and Conditioning at Bristol City Football Club. Reese and I have actually been in conversation for probably the last 10 months and trying to figure out a time that worked out for both of us. And we finally got it last week. Uh, Reese has really wanted to come on the podcast and I've really wanted to have him because his specialization or area of expertise is tactical periodization and post-match recovery, which are the two main topics that we talk about within this podcast. I think that this is going to be great because it's going back to the original roots of this podcast, which is my passion and love for football. In this podcast episode, Reese talks about tactical periodization models. He gives some concrete examples of ways that they go about approaching it at Bristol City for a Saturday to Saturday fixture and also a Saturday, Tuesday, Saturday fixture. And finally, he talks about the post-match recovery menu that are available to players at Bristol City. Overall, a really good podcast. I really enjoy talking to Reese. Let's get started. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Historic Performance Podcast. Today, I'm really happy to be joined by Reese Carr from across the pond. Reese, how are you doing today? I'm, I'm really good, thank you. Thanks for the uh, the opportunity to speak to you. Reese. it's a pleasure having you on. I know we've uh, been back and forth for a little bit, but finally you're on. And yep. we have a good amount of questions that we're going to be going over. And I think it's going to be great to talk uh, about tactical periodization and what you guys are doing over at Bristol City. Yeah, sure. Yeah, looking forward to it. Reese. to start us off, could you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you ended up becoming the head of fitness and conditioning at Bristol? Yeah, I've, I've probably had a little bit of a of a different route to, to most people. A lot of people, certainly in the UK, will will go to university once they finish college, um, do their degree, do an internship, and and I did mine a little bit backwards. So for, for me, football was always the main the main attraction. Grew up as a as a young lad wanting to be a professional footballer, every young boy's dream. That didn't work out. I had a good go at it, but it didn't work out, unfortunately. And I, and I probably fell out of love a little bit with the game when I got to 18, 19, and I wasn't playing the kind of level that I wanted to play. So I went off in life and just got a normal job, which was okay. It was all right. But then after, you know, a little bit of time, you know, I, I had no passion for the job that I was doing. And I'm sitting there one day thinking, I, I don't want to do this for the next 40, 50 years, whatever. And by that time, I'd started playing football again, semi-professionally, um, an okay standard. Um, I was doing a bit of coaching as well where I could. And I just I just really got my, my passion back for the game. It was probably at a time where, um, the club I was playing for brought in a, a coach and he was probably one of the better coaches I've ever played for and really opened my eyes in terms of the way he would do things with us. So that that really opened my eyes in terms of the, the sports science side, the whole tactical side. So it really gave me that that passion for coaching again. So so I had a, I started to look down the, the academic route because without the the professional playing background, you really need to get some kind of academic studies and, and the about. And I was very fortunate really that there was a, a university right on my doorstep that was just starting a, a master's in, in coaching science. Now, I, I approached that university thinking they're not going to let me straight on this master's by no chance. But at that point, I was what was classed as a mature student. Um, so they let me on because of my coaching experience with academies and, and playing experience and where I'd been a young player in a professional environment as well. So I was lucky enough that they they let me join their program. And then from there, I, I found out about internships, which was something I'd never heard of before. 
um, before looking to get into this route in this industry. So found an internship, found an internship at Swansea City Football Club, too far from where I was living at the time. Um, did about a year or 18 months there with Swansea. Took another internship after that with, with Cardiff City and then was offered a job by Cardiff City, my first proper job uh, in the game as, as a head of sports science in their academy. Um, which I which I took I really enjoyed that and after a period of, of time there and working my way up from the 18s to the 23s I've I've managed to to get an opportunity to come here and work at Bristol City with the with the first team which has been which has been brilliant which has been really good good few years um, so a little bit of a a sideways move and a bit, a bit of a different career path to a lot of people that find themselves in the game but yeah here I am I've, I've done a lot of my coaching badges I'm doing my e-license at the moment and I've uh, just started my PhD as well which is looking at the kind of physical and technical outputs in relation to training weeks um, and, and what goes into a training week so um, yeah I'm, I'm writing at the deep end now I think anyway yeah it looks like you're going to be quite busy in, in the future yeah I think so yeah I'm just uh, just getting to grips with it so um, but no it's good it's uh, the main thing for me and, and why I chose that I wanted to work in this industry is because it doesn't it doesn't feel like like work. It's something that I'm passionate about, that I want to learn about. You know, I'm always looking for for new ways of doing things within the game, whether that be physical, whether that be technical, tactical, and it's something that I really enjoy. So um, it doesn't feel like work. It's it's horrible when you lose and your team doesn't perform, but you know you, you get back to work and you look to try and put that right, and that's that's the the challenge I enjoy. Bruce, I know when uh, we were trying to figure out what to specifically discuss on this podcast you mentioned that one of your big passions is tactical periodization and not only that but also how things on the training ground can then impact match performance so to start us off i think a good question and this is a question that i ask everyone is uh what is tactical periodization and from your viewpoint yeah um i'll try my best to answer it so it's something that i was first exposed to on that that first internship that i spoke about at swansea city at the time the manager was was brendan rogers and he'd worked under jose Mourinho at chelsea previously as well so i think that's where brendan had got the the idea from i used to watch how the players would train and i could see that they had a very precise methodology around how they wanted to structure their training week and and that really kind of whetted my appetite um so so i'd ask coaches there i um you know what is this what's your method is, you know because you could see that there was a, a regular pattern in how they were doing things so i just wanted to, to learn a little bit more and i got told well this is this is tactical periodization um without wanting to look as if I didn't have a clue what they were on about. I thought, well, right, I need to go away and learn about this. From from going away and looking at it, it's something that originated in Portugal. Um, excuse my pronunciation. I hope I get this right. But by Vita Frad, and that's at the University of Porto. So it's a little bit out there uh, if you can get things translated from Portuguese. In essence, uh, it's a coach's training methodology um, based around their, their game model. Um, and it focuses on the four moments of the game. Um, four moments being... Uh, when your team is attacking, when your team is defending, and then the two transitions as well. So from attack to defence and, and from defence to attack. So breaking that down a little bit further, every action in, in a game of which there's hundreds, there's thousands involves firstly a, a tactical decision by the player. So whether that's to to play the ball down down the sides or over the top of a defensive line that's squeezed high because you've got a quick number nine, it involves that decision-making process. It involves the, the technical execution to, to get the ball there, whether that's around, over, through. It also involves a, a physiological action um, or whether you've got to get to the ball quickly, whether that's speed, whether it's balance when you're playing your ball on your pass on a single leg. 
and also a player's emotional state as well. So, so psychological. So it, you're trying to cover off the technical, tactical, physical, and psychological elements of the game really within your within your training model as, as much as possible. Now, for me, the top players, certainly the best players, they're the guys that, that tend to make the right decisions more often than not, and then they make the wrong decisions. So hence, that's making the right decision tactically, whether they've got the technical competence to execute that skill, like we were saying, the physical makeup to to repeat these actions time after time. And, and probably the, the key part in that is being able to repeat these actions quickly. Uh, we look at the high intensity distances uh, and actions that are covered by players certainly in the Premier League these days and those numbers are the ones that seem to be going going up and up and players need to be able to do do these things quickly and um, without fatiguing and it affecting their, their technical output as well so so you can see how it all kind of brings it all together really suggest that the tactical the technical the physical the psychological elements shouldn't shouldn't really be trained together so you can get that through through small-sided games through exposing players to different situations different scenarios to improve their learning process whether that's from any of those four points of views. Now, it's not to say that you don't also supplement their training. So, for example, you know, every head coach will put on a team meeting where they're giving tactical information or you might get players out on the training ground doing skill repetition. So that's the technical side. Uh, I'm sure a lot of the guys that will be listening to this are from a, an S&C or um, that, that type of background or a gym background. And, and that's got a huge, huge part in, in football today to make our players quicker to make them stronger more robust prevent them from getting injured and, and keep them on the pitch and then obviously a lot of clubs are investing in psychological support as well so you know the supplementary training that goes around any high performance football environment now is is absolutely crucial to uh, developing your players and getting the, the better performance out of them although the tactile periodization model suggests you can get a lot of this from the, the training and the game model um, so i keep talking about the game model so th this really would come from the the head coach and I think this is one part that's quite important for for people that, that do my job really is is we we provide a service to the players and we provide a service to the coaches as well so that the sooner that we can get a good grasp of what it is exactly that the coach wants from his players um, in terms of, of physically then then this can help us to, to provide that to the players so we can condition them absolutely right now game model that the coach might have one thing that's going to be sure is that when the guys do go out there and they play the game the game becomes unpredictable so by exposing like we say the players to certain scenarios attacking defensive the transitions within their training hopefully that they can get some kind of repetition they can recognize scenarios and their their actions can can come out successfully in the game all the the training that you look to do should fit around the coach's game model ideally if you're playing larger area games on your aerobic days can it be 11v11 can it be done around your um, tactical framework that you're looking to play, how you're looking to play in certain thirds of the pitch, so on and so forth. Um, and that also lends itself then to the to the recruitment of players as well. Because if a manager wants a player to be able to do a certain thing within his position, you need to recruit the player with the right raw materials to be able to do that. And the one example that I always give is nobody plays or signs a goalkeeper that's five foot five. It just doesn't happen. I think the average height for a goalkeeper in the Premier League is something like six foot two. And in the same way, if you want a, a, a fullback that's going to play like the, for example, the Tottenham fullbacks, Rose and Walker, that they're going to be high, they're going to be up on the other team's defensive line, but then have to react to the transition to get all the way back in as well and defend 1v1 against their man, then you need players that have got the physical makeup to be able to do that. So, so the recruitment of the players is absolutely essential around the, uh, the manager's game model. Now, how the 
the manager could choose to to train that probably lends into the the periodized week that is what people really look at what tactical periodization is i think the the more general one that people tend to look at is where you'd have on a clear week anyway your match on a on a saturday for example your recovery day or a day off afterwards and then you're looking at your acquisition fitness days match day minus four being strength uh, minus three being aerobic looking at minus two being speed an activation day on your minus one or a more reactive speed type day and then again following into your other games so that's probably a an overview of the structure of the week yeah so i think i've i've probably gone off a little bit more than what i what i wanted to there but yeah that probably gives a bit of an overview so in in general terms it's taken from how the manager wants to play based around a physical framework of how that you can you can train all of those actions within the within your training week reese uh way back probably uh, thinking like seven or eight months ago i interviewed uh, manuel la puente sagarra um from spain and he was talking about how there's actually different types of uh, tactical periodization models that are widely utilized in Europe. There's ones that are um, a little bit more conservative and other ones that are a little bit more liberal. I was just wondering, and I, and I know in a presentation in the Seattle Sports Science Conference, they were talking about um, kind of like the English model uh, and then the European model. So I was just wondering if you could talk about some of the common tactical periodization models that you've seen and been exposed to throughout your time in, in football. Yeah, of course. Um, it, it's interesting. It's it's one of the more common questions. I, I guess you normally ask the the opposition staff in the in the coach's office after a game. Um, there's always the usual kind of small talk of um, you know, well done today. Who have you got next week? But then coaches are always interested in, in how does how do the other team structure it and what do they look to do within their training week. So that standard kind of model that I've spoken about there about having the the four day lead up really into a game is is the one the model that used to follow when well I say used to follow I was an intern I had no real input into that but um as at Swansea City initially um I've seen different training weeks where teams will have and, and this is just on a clear week now so what I would call a Saturday to Saturday week um they would have a Sunday off and then a Wednesday off in the middle of the week as well I've known teams to have a Sunday off and then have Thursday off leading up into their game as well, the, the, the match day minus two. So that there's several different models out there. I don't think, you know, a team that has a Thursday off might be a team that has a Wednesday off one week and then they play each other the next week and then the, the result might be reversed. So there's, there's more than one way to skin a cat, but, you know, it, it needs to be based around, like I say, that manager's game model, how they've recruited their players and also the, the, the group that you've got. Um, around you. I mean, for example, I know of teams and, and different coaches. Uh, we don't do this one, but I've I've spoke to other coaches that that have a Thursday off, and and their theory behind that is they've got an older group of players, a more experienced group of players, and the, the coach likes to think that well, Thursday would be the day where they're going to carry any DOMS or any fatigue into Saturday because it's four to eight hours before the game, so that's the day they're going to give their players off. So that that's the day. So and that's based around the group of players that he's got and then how the manager will then set them out on the on the weekend because he knows that they're a little bit older so they'll hit certain physical uh, output within a game that other teams might reach or other teams might not reach. I've seen certain models where and probably the more traditional British English way I guess is to have have a Wednesday off and I think that goes back long before sports science was was thought about or before tactical periodization was thought about is, is to have that Wednesday off. Now, one of the cons of that, you, you could argue from a tactical periodization model, is that you're missing out on an acquisition day. However, later on in the season, when players are 30, 40 games deep into their season and you're really just looking at recovery and you're looking at maintenance, 
that's not necessarily a bad thing that you're not working in that extra day during the week. So there's many different models that I've seen. There's no right way. There's no wrong way. Bottom line is for certainly us guys that look at the fitness of our players is are our teams fit? So can they perform the, can they cover the, the total distance that they need to in a game? Can they do the high intensity distance that they need to in the game? And are they fit and are they available? Uh, are they not injured? So the, the manager can pick his best 11 on a Saturday. And as, as long as you're, you're ticking those boxes, how you do it, it's up to you as a practitioner then to find the best way for your your current group that you've got. Like I say, is that the services, the, the manager's needs, really. Reese, so up to this point, we've been really talking about the theory behind it. But I really want to now transition to the practical side of it and maybe talk a little bit about what you're doing at Bristol City. So when it comes to figuring out the weekly microcycle, as we were talking about, and, and specific training themes for those specific days, what are some of the considerations that you have when when planning out the week yeah there's there's a few different ways to, to look at it um we play in the in the championship and and all the kind of british listeners that that we've got will know all about that division and i'm sure a lot of the the guys over your side of the pond will know as well but it's a very very physically demanding league um there's 24 teams in our division so straight away that's a 46 game league season throw on top of that any cup runs whether that's in the the league or the fa cup and then you you're looking at a 50 game plus plus season really um, plus your pre-season games of around about six or seven can lead you into the kind of high 50s low 60s so um, it needs to be carefully managed and carefully planned uh, how, how we tend to do it and certain considerations that, that we need to look at and one of the key things is managing the individual we're at a point now and we're speaking in in late January so we will have a group of players that have played the majority of games so looking to develop any fitness components for them isn't isn't too much our priority at this moment in time. It's more about the recovery and maintaining their fitness levels. However, you might have a group of players that haven't been exposed to too much, uh, too many match minutes. So, so you're still trying to keep on top of them and, and managing the individuals really, really, really important in uh, in this day and age. You know, if you do pick up injuries, if you pick up suspensions, the manager wants to rotate certain players because you've got a three-game week. When those players step in from the, the from the, the group that have just been training into the match group, they, they need to be able to to do what the manager wants them to do on a Saturday. So you really need to manage the individual within your training week. You're probably at a point now where you've got, like I say, a group that even on work days will do a little bit less than, than the other group that are doing a little bit more. You, you don't just have a kind of blanket session for everyone because you need to appreciate that some players have played 25, 30 games um, consecutively. And you've also got the travel schedule as well. Uh, the travel schedule uh, in our division, we, we, we tend to travel by bus. Um, we're very fortunate that we, we do have a comfortable bus, but at the same time, you can finish a game on a Tuesday night at the other end of the country, um, 10 o'clock. You don't go on the bus till 11. You're not getting back home till three o'clock in the morning. So then what you do the day after or in the next two, three days before your next game in such a tight turnaround is going to be very important. Um, you might have to utilise other things like like team meetings with players rather than get them out on the pitch and their time on feet because you realise they're going to be tired and fatigued and you want to regain that freshness and that those energy levels again for them to be able to go and play. So, yeah, like I say, that, that's where the individual management comes in as well. So those guys that have trained, sometimes we'll bring them in a little bit later on to train so it gives them an extra few hours in bed the, the morning after um, just to give them that little bit of recovery from the late night. Um, so it's trying to tweak certain things. You have to take everything to, into consideration, uh, but mainly the individual around the, the needs of the team. Reese, the next thing that I really want to talk about, and maybe this will get a little bit more into nuts and bolts of it, is talking about 
what a week looks like. First of all, one that's just plain. So you have a Saturday fixture followed by a Saturday fixture. And then the second scenario, Saturday fixture, maybe a Tuesday fixture, and then a Saturday fixture and how those differ. Yep. Okay. So uh, how, we, how we would look to structure that at the moment is if we play Saturday, you've obviously got your 90 minute game. And then we also do some conditioning work with the, the guys that, that were on the bench that day as well, uh, post game. So we try to to give them uh, some some good bit of work after the game. We look to work them both longer distance and also shorter distances as well, and try and get them try and get the buy in from the players on that day that they get the work in after the games. Generally, then we'll take the Sunday off afterwards. It's quite important that the players also get their psychological recovery. I've worked in groups before that have brought players in on the Sunday and then given them the Monday off, uh, but nine times out of ten, other if you're bringing a player in on a Sunday, giving them the Monday off, their friends and their family are all in work on the Monday. So they've got no one to share that day with anyway. So we like to give them time for their families on the Sunday. Monday then is very much, you've got two groups. You've got two groups in your training. One of them is a second day recovery. And again, depending on the, the point of the season, that might be a case of getting them out on the pitch just for some mobility work, some very light technical work. Um, if you're later on in the year, it might be a case of taking them down the pool, getting them spinning on the bikes, um, doing recovery sessions, getting them in cryotherapy and ice baths, wherever it may be. But your other group, then your training group, that's when they're going to try and get a physical hit. Normally, that would be a smaller number of players, depending on your squad size, um, which which usually lends itself to more um, anaerobic type work, just because of the numbers of players that you've got. And then you bring all the players back together on your Tuesday. So we'll generally come back together on a Tuesday. And because we we, we take the Wednesday off during the week within our structure. How we train those lads on that day, so whether it's larger areas and a more aerobic day, um, smaller, so it's a more football strength where they work in different muscle groups, more more quad dominant days, the strength days and smaller, small-sided games, really depends on where we are in the season and, again, what we feel that we need. We don't set out a, a template to say, well, this is this point, this is this point, this is this point. It's something that's always evolving and is always being reviewed by the coaching staff. So we always tend to look at that. Wednesday, as I say, would generally be off. Thursday, when we come back in then, would be a speed day. So we're looking at we're looking at medium-sized pitches then. So we're trying to get players to be able to hit top high velocities and their, and their top speeds, but then also keeping the um, the duration of those, those blocks that they're working in quite short. So we get the intensity high, but we keep the volume low and we try and get them to hit high speeds on that particular day. Friday is more reactive. Um, it's more about activation. It's more about switching them on. It's bright. It gives them a lot of tactical information that they need around the game the next day. But again, you try to keep the volume of that day day short so they've got energy in their legs then for the following Saturday. And then there's, the cycle repeats itself. We, we've had some some good good numbers with it. We all, I always look at the the physical output of our players and compare it with with opposition players, and we've had some some good numbers from that. So it, it's a model that's that's worked for us but as I said earlier on it mightn't work for for other groups you know it, it's uh, there's more than one way to skin a cat you asked about the Saturday Tuesday Saturday uh, and the travel really really affects what you do in that particular week like I say if you're getting back at three o'clock in the morning Wednesday morning what you're going to do the following Thursday and Fridays is a, a little bit different a little bit modified not too much but you have to to understand that players have had that late night and, and you've brought them back in late they've, they've had broken sleep but that that week would normally we have them in on the Sunday after the Saturday game to start with. Uh, that first day recovery then would would be done in in the pool. It would be down uh, hydrotherapy. It would involve soft tissue massage with the guys, um, and really a real real down day for them because we understand then that on the Monday we're going to need them on the grass because the coach is going to want to go through tactical information with them. 
Um, so we try and get everything done what we can on the Sunday, um, get them home early, get them that psychological recovery I spoke about. So that Monday then it's a, it's a tactical day. It's very light, very light indeed. Um, and then into the game on the Tuesday, which would be, be in the evening. Uh, Wednesday off after that. And then followed by your Thursday, which again is, is two groups really. Um, you've got your second day recovery, um, more mobility and technical. You've got your physical group then, which you're going to try and give them that speed. They try and get them hitting the, the high velocities I spoke about. But again, low volume, but high intensity into your Friday, your, your tactical preparation, and, and then you're back into Saturday again. And it's really just about trying to, again, manage the individual, but also you're trying to tick every box. So the manager's happy that he's got his tactical information across. You're happy that you've got the right recovery into the lads, the right nutrition, um, and and they've regained their energy levels because uh, the other team's not going to feel sorry for you if they didn't play Tuesday and, and you did. You've got to be ready to go. Reese, I'm just going to take a quick commercial break so that I can include a message from our sponsor, SkinTech who I'm very grateful for sponsoring this podcast episode. Before we get back to part two, I want to thank SkinTech for sponsoring this podcast episode. SkinTech are the creators of the first all-inclusive protective strength training shirt called the Apollo SS. The Apollo SS is currently being used by professional athletes in the NHL, NFL, MLS, and Team USA. It features 6.35 millimeters of XRD Extreme Impact Foam and antimicrobial moisture wicking fabric. The best part is that it's designed and made in the United States. For more information, check them out at skintechfit.com. As an added bonus, all listeners have access to an exclusive promotional code HP20 to get 20% off your next order. So check it out either for yourself or for your athlete. And now back to part two of this podcast episode with Reese Carr. Reese, now that we have the framework in terms of what the microcycle looks like when you have Saturday to Saturday fixture and then Saturday, Tuesday, Saturday fixture, I thought uh, perhaps you could talk about um, some of the metrics that you're looking at in terms of uh, GPS and what other ways that you're monitoring the training outcomes and making any necessary adjustments based on what you're seeing. Okay. Yeah, sure. Um, so, probably best I'll run you through, I guess, a, a morning in the life of one of our players to give give us an idea of that. So, um, for example, our players will they'll wake up in the morning and we used to get them into the training ground for them to fill in a, a paper a wellness questionnaire to let us know how they felt in terms of stiffness, um, sleep duration, their quality of sleep, um, stress, the, the, those type of things. And my issue with that was always I was getting these reports at maybe, I don't know, 10 o'clock. Uh, we have a meeting at quarter past 10, then we're training at half past 10. So to be able to act on that information, if I've got a chase of a player, maybe at five to 10, because they haven't quite got their information just yet, was a little bit too late in the day for me. So um, we're working with Kitman Labs now. Um, so all our players have have an application on their phone. As soon as they wake up, they they send in their, their information on how they're feeling that day. So, so myself and the coaches, we've got that information now, usually by around about, quarter past nine in the morning so we can make decisions then when how we on how we know our players are feeling based around the training day that particular day players will then come into the training grounds um they've got their urine test to do so we can see how hydrated they are we don't use this as a system to to punish them more to to help them if we can identify that they they are dehydrated we'll simply give them a, a bottle of water and say look you need to have you need to drink this before you train today so you're trying to eliminate those soft tissue injuries and and I think when you explain that to a player that it's for their benefit and that, you know, you're basically looking out for them, they don't want to be injured and doing doing the rehab that they have to do. So, uh, 
you know, if they've got any sense, they'll just drink the bottle of water to make sure they're putting themselves in the right position to train. We'll weigh them before and after training um, just to, to check on fluid loss. But then with, with the Kitman Lab system I mentioned earlier, they will also do a, a movement screen so we can see if they're, they're averages for things like ankle dorsiflexion or hip mobility or shoulder mobility in the goalkeepers, if how, how fatigued and how stiff they actually are using those markers that have been tracked over the course of the season. And that information, again, can help us tweak training if players are certainly stiff with with certain movements or their uh, knee to wall or their sit and reach test might be down for example and and those tests are, are modified around the player uh, and their injury history so not every player will have a hip mobility test not every player will have shoulder mobility but their injury history will dictate that so we should at this point now have a good idea about where our players are where our squad are in terms of their health and their wellness um, that helps us adjust training, whether that's protecting certain players as a as a floater within the session, whether it's withdrawing certain players and giving them an extra recovery day, um, whatever it may be. And, and that certainly comes from the communication with, with the coaching staff and being able to interpret the data in the right way. Um, similarly, if we've played a Tuesday night, for example, and our fullback's high-intensity running is, you know, 20% above what it would normally be because of, the, of what the game exposed him to, that might be an argument for us to give him an extra recovery day. But but the key in the interpretation is being able to give that information to the coach. Sometimes used uh, the player's clips to just go into the manager to say, well, look, he's done six runs here where he's had to cover 60 yards to react to transition to get back in. So we know that he's going to be really fatigued through his hamstrings today. We need to look after this guy. We need to wrap him up in cotton wool a little bit. So, so that, that gives us a guide of where all of our players are. And then also monitoring it live, we have uh, the GPS data, which I'm sure a lot of clubs have got you know, around the moment. And depending on which particular day it is, it depends on which certain metrics that we're looking for. For example, if we were going to be working a, a larger session, a larger area and looking at aerobic work, we're going to be looking at total distance covered, time in their, their red zones on their heart rate. Uh, if we were going to be looking at uh, a more strength day, so smaller smaller areas, 3v3s, very quad dominant, um, we'd be looking at high metabolic load distance in that particular session. And then on a speed day, we might be looking at their max speed or their, their, their amount of sprints on that particular day and what we've exposed them to. We generally have an idea of what we want to work to and we'll manage that data live. The coach is very receptive to getting information live because he doesn't want to be overtraining his players. He wants them to be right for the Saturday. So we do all that both live and then post-session as well. We'll sit down as a, as a coaching staff, we'll review it, how we felt training went from a technical, tactical, the physical side of, side of things, and, and then we look to plan the next day as well. Um, so it's something that's constantly evolving. We, we have a, a general framework of how we want to work, but we have to be mindful that you know certain scenarios and certain situations can throw up different challenges at any time. So you have to sometimes be reactive, but around a certain framework and precise idea of how we want to how we want to work, uh, the, the, the model that we've got. Reese, I have, actually have a follow-up question on that. So you mentioned that on a more aerobic day, you're more interested in total distance, uh, more of a, and then more of a strength day, you're probably a little bit more interested in uh, HML, high metabolic load distance. My follow-up question to that is, are there specific numbers that you're trying to hit on those particular days or numbers that you don't want to exceed? Uh, for distance or HML, and you don't need to give the numbers. I mean, just in general, I'm asking. Yeah, yeah, there would be, um, and and again, it would depend on on the point of the season that we're at. So if we were in the kind of early part of the season where you're still looking to develop fitness levels in players in August and September, and we we've got a 
a larger size, I don't know, 8, 8v8 on a, on a box-to-box size pitch. So because we want uh, players to hit certain numbers, yeah, absolutely, we would have an idea. So we know that that particular session might, might get players playing at 100 and, I don't know, 115, 120 metres per minute. So straight away in my head, if I'm thinking that we're doing three 10-minute blocks um, and we're doing 120 metres per minute, that's going to be approximately 1,200 metres block one, two, two, four by the end of block two, three, six by the end of block three. So it gives us an idea to kind of plan in advance alongside any of the technical elements of the session um, as well or, or passing drills or possessions that might be in place as well. So it gives us an idea of what we're looking to achieve um, and where we know our players should be. So, so yeah, absolutely. We, we go into the session having a having an idea of the numbers that we want them to hit. Now, if a player is significantly below that from the live data that we've got, then it might be a case of individually managing him afterwards. Um, look, your numbers are a little bit down today. Might not necessarily be the player's fault. It might just be the way that their their session panned out in their in the role that they were playing. Um, for example, if we do a lot of phase play, the high speed running for the wingers and the fullbacks will be a lot, lot higher than what the centre halves are. So if if the head coach that particular day wanted to work on the phase because he really, really wanted to work on this particular movement to get in to get into the attacking third, then that's absolutely the coach's prerogative. Our role then as the fitness coach or head of con- head of conditioning, wherever you want to call it, is to then identify that okay, so match day minus two, these guys haven't hit in the velocities we wanted them to hit just yet because of positionally uh, where they are within that phase we'll just take the centre half so we're just going to do a little bit extra with them and set up a practice that, that gets that from them so we can get those numbers not all the time but we've got the facility there to, to be able to do that but that comes with communication then as well just running it past the, the head coach looks so and so is a little bit down on on this particular metric you're happy for me to just top them up on it yep great or no I'd rather you not today that's fine it's the like I say we're here to to service the players and to provide a service to the head coach as well so um that's what we that's what we aim to do with the with the live data. Reese, the other area that I wanted to cover was recovery, and uh, you mentioned within the framework of your microcycle what days are, are oriented towards recovery. When it comes to recovery with the players themselves, are they able to pick the recovery modalities that they want to use, or is that something that is more or less a sign that the team level and everyone's doing the same thing? Um, generally, we'll, generally we'll assign it, um, but what I've done before is you know certain players the people that know their body the best are the players they know how they're feeling um then over over time of being a professional footballer after a few years they also know what makes them feel better so we, we try to keep them as a group and as a team and and, and a, a group that's united because it's a team game but at the same time if a player says well you know look i know the ice bath makes me feel a little bit better well then you know we'll make sure that we provide that service for them to be able to have the ice bath as well so try and keep them together but we'll work with the individual what works for them um if players are a little bit older with a bit of an injury history you know they might have that extra recovery day where they're not on their feet where they're not on the grass where they're they're on the beds they're getting soft tissue work um it, it's very much and going back to a point i made earlier on about managing that individual so getting their nutrition right getting their their rest right but then yeah individually manage them because th- they know their bodies and you know, I think you lose buy-in from the players then when you start trying to tell them, no, you need to do this, no, you need to do that. And in the back of their mind, they're thinking, well, hang on, I know what works for me. So you need to work with that player to to get the best for them, really. Reese, would you be able to talk about uh, what the recovery protocol looks like immediately post-game? Generally, that that's the one where we, we offer a bit of a menu on that one, if that makes sense. So that's the one where, because of the emotional state of players, whether it be win, lose or draw, we give them a menu. So we've got 
five or six different types of recovery that they have to they have to tick two or three of those boxes. They'll all get their recovery shake after the game. There's one or two that can't stomach a, a shake at that point because it sits a little bit too heavy with them. So we'll give them um, a different type of recovery drink that works a little bit more for them. We've got the ice baths available. We've got foam rolling. We'll sometimes take players out onto the pitch for a cool down. Um, we've got players with recovery tights as well, recovery pumps, so like the leggings that get the compression and get the blood flowing through their legs. So th- there's certain different mo- modalities that we've got. It's not individualized to the point where we dictate these are your two, these are your two, these are your two. But we tell the pl- we make sure that the players have ticked at least two or three of those boxes with what they with what how they want to recover, uh, what they feel is best for them. And we also provide their nutrition straight into them after the game. So they'll come into the change room in a home game and we've got the the right foods, the, the carbohydrates and the proteins. They're ready for them to take into their system straight away. If we're traveling back on the bus from an away game, we make sure that we order that food in and they've got that food there for them as well. So so we, we, we try and cover everything we can, but also giving the player the um, the choice and the, the ownership. That's the word I'm looking for, the ownership on, on how they want to recover as well. Reese, the last thing I want to talk about in this podcast is there's a lot of young guys that listen to this podcast and obviously they're trying to find information at what's going on in positions that they're interested in, but they also are looking for advice. And as you mentioned, you know, you had a little bit of a, a special case because very passionate about soccer, but you didn't immediately pursue it through university. So if someone finds themselves in a similar position to where you were, what would be some recommendations that you would have for them? Get into the environment quickly would be the first one. We take on, you know, students and, and things like that from our place. And and one of the first things I would say to them is, you know, be observant and, and try and take in everything that you can from your placement because, you know, you, you learn a lot of theory in in university and in, in the academic side of things, but how you apply that in the environment can sometimes be completely, completely different. So it's, it's essential for, for any kind of young practitioner, get into the environment that you want to be in quickly. If you want to work in football, try and get in there. If you want to work in, whether it be squash, rowing, badminton, whatever it is, get exposure to that environment, understand how people work, understand what the traditions are, understand things that you might be able to change quickly, things that you might want to change slowly over time. And that comes with knowing where you want to go. After that period I spoke about where I went out of the game, but I wanted to get back in, I was driven. I knew exactly where I wanted to go. I researched and looked at exactly what qualifications were needed. I found a few professionals that I really, really respected and this they really look up to in terms of how their career has developed and then look at how they've done that and, and try and mirror that with your own slant on things. But then the, the main things are to really just... Just work hard. Try and stay as, as humble as you can. Remember where you've come from. It, it doesn't feel like that long ago where I was an intern, and I try and stress that to all of my interns, that you know, sometimes you might have those days where you're thinking, oh, this can be monotonous, or I'm just doing the menial tasks. But you need to do those menial tasks right, and you need to get them right every single day. And then the guys who are in charge of your placement, they'll give you more responsibility over time. So it's about meeting those challenges. Stick to your values. I once heard a manager, I won't, I won't name who he is, but I saw him speak at a conference. And he, and he said he just had a handful of rules to live by. Number one, don't be late. Number two, always give 100%. And number three, don't be an idiot. I think if you if you stick by those three things, then it probably should should serve you right. If you're passionate about what you want to do, you get your head down, you keep working for it, and then you, and you get there. That was great. Don't be an idiot. <laughs> That's a great piece of advice. Yeah, this is, it's, it's it's simple, isn't it? But you know, it's right. Every we all know we all know people who are idiots, and nobody nobody wants to be the idiot. 
Risa, if anybody wants to reach out to you, whether it's to chat about anything in the podcast or just talk about anything else, uh, what's the best way they can do so? Yeah, sure. I'd welcome it. Probably the best one is to get hold of me on Twitter. Um, quite active on there. Probably a bit too much if you ask my wife. Um, but I'm just Reese Car 86 on there. So, um, yep, yeah, feel free to get in touch and, and, and I will. I will get back in touch definitely. And like I say, if there, if there is anything I've I've waffled on and I've or I've got my words mixed up with anyone, just feel free to get in touch with me on on Twitter wherever. And I'm more than happy to answer any questions that that people might have. Thanks again for listening to another episode of the Story Performance Podcast. As always, if you enjoyed it, please make sure to head over to iTunes to either leave a review or rating. It really helps others discover the show, and I greatly appreciate it. I'll see you guys next week. <laughs>